Section 31 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 21 The Breakdown of Government under Henry VI. Although organized society continued to exist during the Wars of the Roses, the credit of this cannot be imputed to the Lancastrian administration. The framework of government existed, but its force was gone. One condition of firm and orderly government is financial stability. This requisite, the administration of Henry VI, like that of the French monarchy before the Revolution, did not possess. Indeed, the evil went further back. In the reign of Henry IV, the meager revenue of the kingdom, estimated at an average of £106,000, generally sufficed just to cover the normal expenses of government. There can never have been anything but the barest surplus at the end of a year, and any extraordinary expenditure for war was apt to cause a tremendous deficit, so that the revenue of the next year would have to be anticipated. Such anticipations crippled the future government. In 1411, for instance, it has been calculated that the estimated revenue only brought in a little over £48,000, while the expenditure was over £64,000. In the reign of Henry V, the French war caused a continual deficit. The average revenue, £115,000 net, was little larger than under the former king. Yet the wages of the English forces in France, if actually paid, would alone have absorbed £90,000 a year. The expenses of the campaign of Agincourt had not all been met at the death of Henry V. Thus the administration of Henry VI started with a load of debt and never got free from it. The French War, which continued with intervals till 1453, was a bottomless gulf for the revenue of England. The French provinces themselves could make hardly any contribution. The Duchy of Guienne in 1433 furnished towards its expenses only a little over 77 pounds. In this year, the Treasurer of England, Lord Cromwell, furnished a most gloomy financial statement. He was able to rely on only 38,364 pounds for revenue, while the expenditure was 56,878. In addition, the Crown was in debt nearly 165,000 pounds. Even the King's household could not be properly maintained. A poem of 1450 said that King Henry beggeth from door to door. The exaggeration contains a good deal of truth. As the administration became more disorganized, the amount of revenue naturally tended to decrease. Between 1428 and 1454, the average gross revenue of the crown was about 84,000 pounds. Between 1454 and 1461, it was under 59,000 pounds. The difference was due in the second period to the absence of parliamentary grants. Although the government badly needed money, it could not get it from Parliament. Instead, it had to rely on the old crown revenues, crown lands, 
and the farm of the shire, and on the customs which were levied at the same rate all through the reign. As the king was unable to live on his own without any subsidy from Parliament, the government had to resort to the bad principle of resuming alienated crown lands, that is, taking back without compensation the portions of the royal estates which had previously been granted away. It had been doubtless a very unwise policy to give away the estates of the crown, but to take them back again by a comprehensive and compulsory act of Parliament would have caused a revolution in the social and economic life of the landed classes. The crown could not have stood the strain of such a shock. Accordingly, the Acts of Resumption, the first of which was passed in 1450, were burdened with so many exceptions that they did little to replenish the revenues of the crown. Thus, during the years between 1454 and 1461, the Lancastrian government was practically bankrupt, not because the country lacked money, but because the government was too weak to induce the people to contribute. Another evidence of the weakness and failure of the Lancastrian government is the breakdown of the legal system. It was an age of great litigiousness, and yet respect for justice was not enforced. Men took justice into their own hands and became a law for themselves, yet the country had good and learned judges, men like Yelverton, Littleton, Fortescue, and attorneys were so numerous that the Crown and Parliament in vain tried to restrict them. The central courts could not control the great lords, and the local courts dared not. Poorer people were lawless too, the woods were often infested with robbers and travelling was unsafe. The stories of the dangers from robbers to which Queen Margaret was exposed in her wanderings prove at least that the age was familiar with the idea of public insecurity. The history of the robber, Roger Church, who was bailiff of the Hundred of Blowfield and who had a regular band of ruffians in Norfolk in 1452, is only one out of many other instances. Evidence of the breakdown of the legal system is scattered broadcast through the past and letters, and may be gathered from other and less local sources of history. Even the crown itself, or at any rate its advisers, was not above reproach. The oath administered to judges obliged them to do justice, even if the king, by his letters, or by word of mouth, should order the contrary. Apparently, when a lawsuit was coming on in a county court, the sheriff might receive letters from the king ordering him to pack the jury with a view to obtaining a particular kind of verdict. Also the sheriff informed us that he hath writing from the king that he shall make such a panel to acquit the Lord Mullins. The dispute between the heir male and the heirs general of the House of Berkeley seems to have been carried on by intermittent private warfare from 1421 to 1475. The disputants had recourse to the law also, but this did not prevent them from trying to settle it by the strong hand. The evils of livery and maintenance must often have reduced the courts held in the counties to a farce. At the sessions of Oyer and Terminer held on May 4, 1451, at Walsingham, in Norfolk, Sir Thomas Tudnam and his ally, John Hayden, lawyer, 
were indicted for wrongs done in the county at various times, and the said Tuddenham, Hayden, and other oppressors of their set come down thither as I understand with four hundred horse and more, and considering how their well-willers were assembled at their instance, it had been right jeopardous and fearful for any of the plaintiffs to have been present. The crown indeed was weak, the elements of disorder were strong, there was no governance. National defense was another duty which the government of Henry VI performed badly. The English empire in France was completely lost by 1453. The narrow seas were badly guarded. The libel of English policy contrasts the weakness of England on the sea in 1436 with the firm policy of Henry V. Where been our ship? Where been our swords become? The poet exclaims, and he gives as much needed advice to the king. Cherish merchandise, keep the admiralty, that we be masters of the narrow sea. But after the loss of the French provinces, there was no improvement in English naval power. Even on the sea, England now seemed hopeless. The expedition of the Norman, Pierre de Brézé, which stormed and plundered Sandwich in August 1457, shows how feeble was English sea power. This happened at a time when there was no civil war at home. Warwick as admiral did something to re-establish English naval reputation, but the crown had no control over him. Among the sailors, the government was not able to maintain discipline. In January 1450, Adam Mullins, Bishop of Chichester, sent down by the government to Portsmouth to pay the wages of Sir Thomas Curiel's men, was murdered by the soldiers and sailors. Such men were not in a good condition to defend the country. A crowning proof of the feebleness of Henry VI's government is its total inability to deal promptly with the Kentish rising of Jack Cade in 1450. The king had to fly to Kenilworth, leaving the capital exposed to the insurgents. The weakness of the executive cannot be ascribed to the liberal constitutionalism of Henry VI. The Lancastrian experiment, limited constitutional monarchy, had no existence after the year 1437. At first, it is true, the monarchy was eminently constitutional, the council, which was the executive body of the crown, consisting of advisers and ministers of the king, was in the year 1404 nominated in Parliament. That is to say, the members of council were appointed with the approval of Parliament. From this year until the fifteenth year of the reign of Henry VI, the councillors were regularly approved by Parliament. In the first year of his reign they were formally appointed by statute. Thus, during the first half of the Lancastrian period, there was a definite correspondence between Council and Parliament. The Council was a link between Parliament and the King, and thus may be considered a forerunner of the modern cabinet system. But from the year 1437, King Henry VI began to nominate the Council absolutely, without reference to the Parliament. He was then just under 16 years of age and was considered old enough to be his own master. From this time, 
the close correspondence between council and parliament ceased. It became, in fact, as well as in name, the king's council, without responsibility to parliament. The result was disastrous to the crown. For the odium of unpopular measures and failures which would have fallen only upon the ministers if they had been responsible to parliament, was gradually passed from the ministers to the king, whose mere servants they were. The Dukes of Suffolk and Somerset are instances of ministers and councillors retained by the king against powerful and consistent opposition from a large section in Parliament. The Duke of York is an instance of a man eminent in the country and desired by a large number in Parliament, yet excluded from the ministry and even from the council. It was from 1444 that Suffolk became chief minister of the king. That year saw the triumph of the policy of peace, which Cardinal Henry Beaufort so strongly advocated. Suffolk was at the head of the embassy, which carried through the peace with France, and arranged the marriage of King Henry with the French princess Margaret. In 1447, the council, chiefly under the influence, or so men thought at the time, of Suffolk, put Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the king's uncle, under arrest. On the 23rd of February, Gloucester was dead. The good Duke Humphrey, the last of the king's council who was really popular in Parliament and in the country. In the same year, April 1447, died Cardinal Beaufort. Suffolk was left almost alone in the king's confidence and supreme in the council. The unpopularity of Suffolk is amply proved by the reports which were publicly spread abroad through the country against him, and by the political poems which were written at the time of the loss of Normandy. As early as 1447, he felt it necessary to deny these reports in front of the council and to make an explicit defense of himself. The country as a whole would gladly have seen him retire from the council. But King Henry, perhaps through the influence of Queen Margaret, held to him all the more, raising him in 1448 from an earl to a duke. The impeachment of Suffolk in 1450, although perhaps prompted by Lord Cromwell, was enthusiastically taken up by the commons. But King Henry still went on acting as an absolute monarch, and by his own advice, and not reporting him to the advice of his lords, stopped the trial and sent Suffolk abroad. This led to the duke's murder at sea, apparently an act not disapproved of in the country. King Henry's adherence to the Duke of Somerset was equally against the spirit of the Lancastrian experiment. The Duke of York, in 1445, had concluded a period of not unsuccessful government in Normandy. In 1447, King Henry reappointed him for five years, but immediately, under the influence of Somerset, cancelled the appointment. York was made lieutenant of Ireland so as to be out of the way. Somerset went to Normandy as lieutenant and was made duke in 1448. His period of government was the most disastrous in the whole course of the Hundred Years' War. Then, after the great failure of English arms abroad, and after the rebellion and trouble made by Jack Cade at home, York and Somerset 
both came back to England. There was no doubt which of them most people would have liked to see become the king's adviser. Somerset was thoroughly unpopular, and York, owing to that unpopularity, gained the character of a popular champion. Yet Henry seems not to have hesitated for a moment. Somerset was made constable of England, and from that time till his death had the ear of the king. There is no need to pursue this theme further. King Henry never consented to remove Somerset from the council and to admit York, except when compelled by force of arms. But any revival of the king's power saw Somerset again chief adviser. If Henry had acted constitutionally, if he had dismissed the minister who was disliked, and have given his confidence to the other, the Duke of York would have had no excuse for rebellion, and no one in the country would have had any excuse for following him. The administrative system of the country was unsound. The legislative system was in no better condition. Parliament was poisoned at the fountainhead. The election of members was frequently corrupt. This evil was at first largely due to interference from local magnates, but the crown itself was not above exercising a sinister influence. The election of borough members, although the franchise was often monopolized by a comparatively small oligarchy of the town, was probably the freest part of the parliamentary system. County elections were adversely affected, like everything else, by the evil of livery. Henry IV did what he could to amend matters. In 1406, an important statute was passed to the effect that the knights of the shire should be elected freely in the county court without regard to any pressure from without, and that as a guarantee of free election, the return of the successful candidate's name should be made on an indenture signed with the names and bearing the seals of all who took part in the election. This law was specially intended to prevent the sheriff for making a false return under pressure from some great man. It would also tend to prevent pressure from the crown. But to judge from the names given in the subsequent indentures, the number of electors cannot have been large. As few as eight sometimes appended their seals. Thirty was a large number, and appears only in the most populous counties. Very occasionally the number rose to forty. A small body of voters might easily be subjected to outside pressure from men like Tuddenham and Hayden, with their four hundred bravos. Still the indentures before the year 1430 show that all classes of people took part in the elections, down, apparently, to simple yeomen. Of course, many more persons would often take part in elections than those who actually sealed the indentures. Notwithstanding that, by statute, all were bound to add their seals, a return signed by a few to represent all the rest was accepted as valid. In 1430, a change was made in the qualification for the county franchise, which must considerably have diminished the number of voters. Hitherto, elections had taken place in full county court. To the county court or shire moat, Everyone had the right of coming who was a freeholder or above that rank. Below freeholders who could come personally were the vilains, who were represented by the four best men and the reeve, from each manor in the county. 
but a statute of 1430 enacted that only men who had a 40-shilling freehold should be qualified as electors. This law must have cut the vilain entirely out of elections, and must also have excluded all yeomen whose land had an annual value of less than 40 shillings. The object of this restriction was to make the elections more orderly. The statute stated that the election of members of Parliament had often been carried through by the rabble. This is no doubt true. Still, the smaller the number of voters, the greater might be the chance of undue influence from some high and mighty source. In the same spirit, an act was passed in 1445 stating that no one below the degree of knight should be elected member for the shire. Thus, the whole yeoman class was cut out of the body that might supply members of parliament. The restriction was probably no cause of grief to the yeoman, and it may have made no actual change in the class of men returned before or after 1445. But it was not a change in the spirit of that constitutionalism which has been so often credited to Henry VI. Interferences in elections by the crown itself were by no means unknown. In 1404, the writ of summons from Henry IV, following a precedent set by Edward III, ordered that no lawyers should be returned as members to the Parliament of that year, which accordingly has since been known in history as the Unlearned Parliament. In 1459, after the discomfiture and flight of the Yorkists at Ludford, a parliament was summoned to Coventry, where the opponents of the king's party were formally attainted. The commons in this case were returned by the sheriffs after the receipt of privy seal letters from the crown, naming the persons who were to be elected. When such a cynical violation of all parliamentary liberty was carried out, it seems hardly sufficient to cite the origination of money grants in the Commons as a significant proof of the position which the House of Commons had already won under the constitutional rule of Lancaster. Another breach of privilege of Parliament is the imprisonment of Thomas Young, member for Bristol, for proposing in the Parliament of 1451 that the Duke of York should be declared heir to the Crown. There was nothing treasonable or unlawful in such a proposition, as York was undoubtedly the heir presumptive, in default of any issue to Henry and Margaret, who were still childless after five years of married life. The privilege of Parliament ought effectually to have preserved Young from suffering for making a proposition not unlawful, though distasteful to the king. But the Constitution was violated. Young had to go to the Tower. It is not enough to reply that the Yorkist princes acted unconstitutionally too. The condemnation of the House of York does not imply the acquittal of the House of Lancaster. End of section 31.